The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. As we uh, host our missions conference each year, really our goal is to be a blessing to our missionaries, uh, to, to hear from them what's happening in the field, to know how we can pray for them, to encourage them. But uh, since we had a number here, I couldn't resist asking Cam Smith if he would minister to us uh, and have asked him to, to preach God's word to us. Cam has been uh, the RUF campus minister at Penn State for almost a year, may will be a year. And he may share this uh, with you, I'm not sure, but uh, Cam became a Christian in RUF at Penn State as a student, uh, and so it's a really neat uh, way that God has brought him back now to minister to others on the campus there. We're uh, sad that his family wasn't able to make it with sick kids uh, tonight, but we're grateful that you're here to give God's word to us, Cam. It is my pleasure to be here. It's an encouragement to stand before you and open God's word and point you to Jesus and look at him together because 15 years ago I didn't know who Jesus was. And it was through the faithful prayers and support of this church and others in this area um, that sent a pastor to the campus of Penn State that ministered to my soul. And it's because of that that I get to be before you today as a minister of the gospel, let alone a part of the same ministry that you continue to support and continue to see the word go out and be effective in people's lives. Um, I'd like to open up scripture with you. We're going to be in the verse of Luke, chapter 23, verse 34. And so as you turn there, I want to give you a little bit of background of where Luke is, has been so far, since we're in the 23rd chapter, and of course where Luke is going, which finishes with the resurrection of Jesus in real time and space, which we're celebrating and looking to for our hope this Lenten season and year-round. So Luke 23, 34 well, Luke so far is telling the story of the creator God, the God of the Old Testament that you read about who made the earth, made everything in it, and saw that it was good and saw it fall, and has dedicated to rescuing it. And Luke's telling the story of that creator God as he reveals himself as a child, innocent, vulnerable, and that child grew up to become an amazing man. And we know him by all the stories throughout Luke and the other three gospel writers that tell the true stories of this Jesus that's recorded for us to be encouraged. This man spoke to storms and creation, and creation listened to him. No one ever saw anything like it. 
He healed the lame. He made the blind to see. He confronted the stubborn. He comforted the lonely. He associated with the lowly and even promised to take away the sins of the world. That's what's been going on so far in Luke. What an extraordinary man. Infinitely kind. Love itself in bodily form. How beautiful and how unusual. But the point we are in in the story is though Jesus was always lovely, always kind, even when he confronted, those who weren't in love took offense and took great offense. And now that story takes a turn. And instead of people seeing the loveliness of Jesus, they saw him as a threat. And we enter the story with this man who's more amazing than any human you've ever seen, being mocked, being hated, being condemned, and about to be tortured and murdered. And not by some evil government or agenda, not by atheists, not by sinners or the deviant, but by his own people. Betrayed by the ones he loved, the 12 he drew closest to him. Peter, who's closest, his closest friend, vehemently denied him three times in his greatest need. These are the people that betrayed Jesus. And this is how Jesus responds to them, just as they've decided that they want to crucify him. Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would let us see your words clearly, not only in our minds this evening, but that they would sink deep into our hearts and into our hands as we turn to serve the world through your grace and your spirit. Speak truth to us deep in our souls. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I live in a neighborhood in State College, Pennsylvania, that is probably like many neighborhoods. And if you have the unfortunate um, opportunity to have an e-message board, a uh, listserv, then you know some of the kind of stories that I can tell from that listserv. And so this thing was designed so that everybody in the neighbor neighborhood could communicate and encourage one another or make them aware of things. But these are the kind of things that we get upset about, such as during the Chinese New Year, um, somebody wrote a message that said, urgent sounds like gunshots. And so then people get on there and some people are like, oh, it's just the Chinese New Year. Other people get on there and they, they um, are raving against these people that come into their neighborhood and why are they setting fireworks off? Isn't it enough on July 4th? And then other people come on and say, how dare you say urgent and gunshots? It wasn't urgent, it wasn't gunshots. And everybody fights over whose perspective was right. And then I read it and think that I can, you know, cause peace and be in the middle ground. And it just stirs up more. Well, my buddy next door, he's has a young family, and he moved there from Idaho and didn't know the rules about what you can put out on 
um, your organic waste day, so things from your lawn, um, clippings. Well, what he didn't know is that you cannot put the clippings of decorative grasses out on the curb. They'll pick up anything but decorative grasses. These are, these are the devil in our neighborhood, decorative grasses. But he didn't know that, and, he, and so he stacked up this giant pile of clippings from decorative grasses, and so the three o'clock wind came through, as it does every day, and blew them all over the neighborhood. And he understood that you can't put decorative grasses out for this reason. But nobody came and talked to him about it, of course. And he didn't know that this listserv existed, and he was blasted on it. And somebody was upset enough that they actually wrote to the paper talking about this terrible neighbor that they have who would put decorative grasses out on the curb. Didn't he know better? This happens in a neighborhood where everyone should have a reason to get along. They all are in the same socioeconomic range. They, many of them are Christians. Many of them um, are related, relate to Penn State together. We have every reason to get along. But my point is this. Even in the best conditions, we can't even love our friends and our neighbors. And Jesus here is in the worst condition and he loves his enemies. And that makes all the difference in the world. For we are at strife with one another, at strife in this world. We are doomed to scratch and claw for a little piece that we can call ours, or the opposite, be a doormat and so that you can try to create peace and not be troublesome. In the world full of that strife, in our country, in our city, in our streets, in our neighborhoods, in our own family, in our own churches, Jesus is the only one who fights for the other and gives us peace. And so what we have in this passage is a juxtaposition between human beings, Christian or no, and our loving God. And so we're going to talk about those two things tonight. While we can't even love our friends, Jesus loves his enemies. And so we'll begin with talking about how we struggle to love our friends. When we come to Scripture, we look at passages and we try to figure out where are we in the story? How do we fit into it? Especially when you come to a narrative about an event that was going on in history and you think, what am I supposed to learn from this? What am I supposed to take away? And so you start kind of attaching yourself to different characters and seeing how they fit. Well, there's something to learn from every character, certainly. Um, The one thing I would warn us against is making ourselves the Christ figure because Jesus is always the Christ figure, the hero. But even from him we can learn that we, as redeemed people, are supposed to follow in his footsteps and suffer like he suffered, and so there's something to learn there. But you start looking around at Pilate, who, um, before this, if you read the narrative, it's fascinating. He does not want to condemn Jesus. He's afraid that Jesus might be real, and he doesn't want the blood of Jesus on his hands, but in order to placate with the crowd, he kind of hands over the responsibility to them and says, I wash my hands of this. We can identify with that. Thieves on the cross, some of us feel kin to them religious people, certainly. The disciples disappearing in his greatest need. But there's a character that we often forget. We miss it because it's the crowd. 
We're not an individual necessarily in the story. We are part of the crowd. Generally, we go along with the crowd. And anytime you see a crowd, you can almost always assume that you're part of the crowd in the story. For example, David and Goliath. You think, you know, you hear the Bible stories as children and you think, oh, who are, what are the Goliaths in my life that I need to defeat? That's not what it's about. You're on the sideline and you're watching and this giant, if he defeats your champion, David, you get enslaved. And we're terrified and we're peeing our pants on the sideline waiting to find out what happens with our champion going out for us. That's who we are. And so in this too, we're in the crowd. And the crowd is who's crucifying Jesus. They're the ones that cry out against him. And Jesus says to them, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he's saying it to those who were literally crucifying him in 33 AD. And he's saying to us now, for we know not the cost of our sin. We know not what we do, yet he prays for us anyway. My four-year-old, she's almost five, she loves to be messy. If there is something messy, she wants to be in it. So just for her, we created a mud kitchen in our backyard. And she has all these, you know, pots and pans and things that she can fill with mud and transfer back and forth and pretend she's cooking. And this winter has been so warm that she was able to go out this last week and play in the mud. And she came in and we were ready for her to come in. We were prepared for this. And so we sent her right to the mud room to take off her, her muck boots that we bought just for this reason. And she takes them off, puts them down. Everything's good until three days later. It's time for her to go on Tuesday mornings to her preschool. And she wants to wear these boots. She wears them everywhere all the time. And she goes and gets the boots. And I remember, I'm like, oh, good. I remembered. Lucy, carry those to the front door and put them down. Don't put them on until we leave because they're caked with, with dirt. And of course, halfway there, she thinks, oh, I'll do what mom and dad do, knock out the boots. And so she sits down in the middle of the living room and she starts knocking out her boots. <laughs> and I, nobody else is home, no other adult is home at the time, so I, of course, yell at her. And then she seems to get the point and she stops, but then she, she's taking them off as I asked her to do by the front door. And in the middle of taking them off, she has one off, one on, she decides I have to go potty right now. And she runs to the bathroom with one boot on, clipping, clomping down the hall. And this continues until there is dirt all over the house. And I'm carrying a baby the whole time and I can't take care of it, I'm frustrated. And then I realized she's four years old. She knows not what she does. We have no clue what it is that we're doing. We have no clue the trail, the residue, the mess of our sin that we're leaving for God to clean up. We don't even know to clean it up. Or others to come along and have to deal with it. Well, what is that mess? What, what is the mess of sin? Why is it such a terrible thing? What is it really? Well, here's a picture of it from God's own word. And it comes from the book of Hosea. And God says to Hosea, do you want to know what it's like to be me and love a people that doesn't love me in return? An unfaithful people? 
a people who have believed since the fall that God is withholding. Though I have given them everything. He's like, you want to know what that's like? Hosea, take a wife who is a whore, is the word the Bible uses. And not like many who are in prostitution that have been enslaved, who have been disadvantaged and taken advantage of, but willingly she leaves her husband and goes after others for the things that they give her. And he says, not only that, go and take this woman for your wife, have three children with her, and watch her abandon you and abandon the children and run after these other men. And she will speak to you and call them her lovers in front of you and you will die a little inside. And then those lovers won't provide for her. And guess what you're going to do, Jose? You, like me, are going to provide for her. And you're going to give to those lovers everything that she needs to thrive. And she brags about all the good things she's getting from these lovers, yet they're all coming from her husband. And she knows, he knows it's only a portion because they withhold the best for themselves. And then she'll be rejected by those lovers. And she'll return to you just to leave again. And then someday she's going to find herself up for sale in sex slavery. Stripped naked for everyone to see and you will be there and you will purchase her back with everything that you have because you love her and you can't stop loving her. And she'll never understand the cost to you. This is how God speaks about how his people treat him. And for his kindness, we should love him. And there's little in us to love, yet God loves us and we spurn him. We have no clue. We have no clue. Every sin, every thought, word, and deed is turning to another lover. That's what we're doing. Yet we know not what we do. And it's while we still have no clue that Jesus prays for our souls to his Father in heaven and says, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we think, surely these words, these powerful words that he's speaking to people who don't deserve it is going to melt them, right? Melt their hearts. And what they do is they respond. And they mock him and they say, in verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They say, you pray for us. You cannot even save yourself. Why so angry? Why the venom we wonder? Well, there's a story in Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, and it's a famous story called The Grand Inquisitor. And what happens in the story is that the Jesus that we know in the Bible fictionally shows up in this Spanish town, and he does what Jesus of the Bible does. 
He heals the sick, the lame. He speaks words of life and peace. His goodness is irresistible. It's changing everyone in the town. And everyone loves him, except for the Grand Inquisitor, the religious leader. And the narrator says he felt like he needed to stop Jesus at once. And so he arrested him and condemned him, and he told him he was disrupting their religion. It was to be put to death on the morrow. And this is a quote from the book. Jesus looked gently at the old man. He listened intently, but evidently did not wish to speak. And the old man longed for him to say something bitter and terrible. But instead, Jesus approached the old man in silence, and he gently kissed him. And that was all his answer. And the old man shuddered and sent Jesus away, yelling after him, never, never come back. Jesus' love made him angry. Because Jesus' love is uncomfortable. Because Jesus' love makes us actually see the truth about ourselves. And we hate to see ourselves that way. That we are not the good ones. But that we gather here and we come together as Christians because we recognize we're not the good ones. And so our only hope is that this love of Jesus, this forgiveness that he offers is more powerful than our hatred, our hate of our neighbor, our hate of ourselves, our hate of God when we're confronted. And that's exactly the case. Where we fail to love Jesus does not. We cannot love our friends, yet he loves his enemies. And this just it's crazy that he would love his enemy. Enemy love is crazy. You just think about your daily routine. Everybody has this one person or two or three that they just can't stand and they just think it would be great if an anvil dropped on this person and they were wiped from the face of the, face of the earth. And there's no better point in case than the dozens and dozens of movies that you can think of right off the top of your head about vigilante justice-seeking taking down the bad guys. It's one of our favorite pastimes. One of my favorites is Gerard Butler in a movie called Law Abiding Citizen. And I don't even know if this is the movie, um, but this is my memory of what I loved about it, which was his wife was murdered. And so he watches as the justice system fails him and lets this man off on a technicality or lets him off for... um, ratting out somebody else. And he thinks, what kind of justice is that? And so he spends the next 15 years plotting not to take down his murderer who got out, but to take down the justice system and show how hypocritical it really is. And when he makes a fool out of the justice system, your heart is just full of anger, of feeling righteous in your anger towards the failed justice. This is what we do when we face opposition in life. We rage. We can't believe they would say that or they would cut us off. We can't believe they would vote for such a person. But where we rage, Jesus is at rest. And he says to them when they say, you prove it, but he does nothing. 
Instead, he prays for them. He does the opposite. He did not come to die for himself. He came to die for them. So that the people who would kill him to save their own hides, to save their own pride, would live. So instead of rage, out of love, he offers mercy and says, Father, forgive them. In this cosmic exchange, their rage and his mercy changes the world. This exchange of his righteous response and his righteousness for them and their unrighteousness that he takes on himself on the cross, which is what he's doing, changes the world. It's the very event that we're watching right now in the scriptures where he's crucified, he soon will die and then be resurrected. It begins something new, something the world's never seen before. Because it's a world where death can no longer hold people in the grave. Where death comes to steal life, and when it comes, it sees the mark of Jesus. It sees his blood, that God has marked you out for himself. And it cannot touch you. That's what Jesus was accomplishing. And those marked out by the blood of Jesus are those who believe that they have turned to many lovers, but also believe that they are wrong in doing so and that the only one worthy of love is this kind man, Jesus. And the beauty of this is Jesus didn't just pray this once. We see it here. But when he died, he was resurrected not to be at rest, but he was raised to be at the right hand of the Father where this is all he prays for you. He continually prays for your soul that Satan would not sift it, but that God would save it. And so our hope, our Christian hope, is in Jesus' prayer. Not in our love of our neighbor, but in Jesus' prayer. Forgive them for they know not what they do. It's the prayer that saves us. It's the prayer that sustains us. Because our prayers are not effective. Our missions are not effective. Our love is not effective. None of our works are effective unless they are Jesus' works. Unless they are Jesus' prayers and Jesus' love. Jesus' mission, and if they are, and you pray them too, no one can stop you because no one can stop him. And what are those prayers as we go out into the world on mission in every area of life? What's well, the mission of Jesus is to love the unlovely. That's who we are. That's why we're gathered here tonight, not because we're lovely in our own right, but lovely because Jesus loves us. And so when you go out and you go into the business world, the gospel says cut a fair deal rather than destroy your opponent. When it comes to promotion, the gospel says raise others up and celebrate them over yourself. In sports, the gospel says you have to love the guy who this really happened. He made us redraw the long jump pit because he thought he was going to jump over it and he didn't even place. You've got to love that guy. Or on your street, it means shoveling the sidewalk of the rich lady who's really mean to everybody and refuses to pay somebody to shovel her sidewalk, even though she can't do it herself. In your home, it means overlooking many slights from your spouse, from your kids or maybe even confronting them for their sake, not for yours. 
Or in your bed, it means looking to serve the other. Or if you're not married, to serve them by not getting in it. In your school, it means inviting the bully over for a play date. Or in your gym, it means not to talk junk about the guy who throws weights and grunts or the people who wear very little, but it's to invite them. But all of this is foolishness, right? It's all impossible. And it's crazy. But it's the kind of things that Jesus uses to change the world and build the kingdom that he wants, that will be our inheritance. And so while all those people that we are annoyed by, they're scratching and clawing and climbing over each other, but Jesus' prayer for them, our prayer now for them is, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do, like me. And we find that power only in the fact that we are the unlovely. We are the ones Jesus came to save, the very people who put him on the cross. But Jesus prays for us. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and it makes all the difference. I'm going to steal the thunder from Stephen Beck. He's preaching for you on Sunday, and you'll meet him over this this conference, but I heard him last weekend tell this story, and I'm going to take it right out from under him, because he's not here to say anything else. Well, he is, was the son of German missionary, so he grew up in Germany, and um, he was telling, me about, telling everybody about Nazi Germany, and that they were fine with the Christian church there, as long as it was the German church for the German people. And if you did that, they encouraged that. They wanted you to do that. And Bonhoeffer, among others, pushed against that, and they were put in jail. They were eventually murdered for this, for resisting, because they wanted to hold on to the gospel. And when he was in jail and he was writing what he hoped to become a, a ecclesiology of how we do church, he wrote this about the church. A church of Jesus is only a church for Jesus if it's a church for others. A church of Jesus is only a church for Jesus if it's a church for others. Because we are the others. There's no church without them. For we are all once enemies of God, running after other lovers. Yet for anyone who believes in Jesus, he purchases their soul and marks them out with his blood to be looked over by death so that they might live forever with him. So that means the ones we consider others belong here with us because they're one of us. Let me pray to that end. Lord Jesus, we thank you that while we were still enemies, you prayed for our souls and God has delighted to answer and forgive us. Not because we did something wonderful, but because you loved us and prayed for our souls. Let us not forget this gift and not forget to share it, that we might cherish it even more as others come to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.